Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Right now, get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer by going to Stamps.com and using the promo code THEGIST. And by DraftKings. Start this football season by winning $2 million. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Use code GIST to play free for a shot at $2 million. In the week one, $10 million millionaire maker. Go to DraftKings.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, August 31st, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So we know flip-floppery is bad. I was for it before I was against it. No, that'll kill you. But you know what gets a little less attention but just as bad? It's not being for it or being against it, saying it raises interesting questions. Hillary Clinton does this a lot. Well, you know, this raises hard economic questions. And then the cousin of raising the questions is not willing to rule something out. Ugh. Scott Walker did this on Meet the Press. He was asked about a wall on the border, aren't they all? But this time it was the northern border. Well, we want to build a wall north of the border, Some people have asked us about that in New Hampshire. They've raised some very uh, legitimate concerns, including some law enforcement folks. That is a legitimate issue for us to look at. Yeah, it's a legit issue. I'd, I'd look at it. I'd consider it. Like, Ben Carson wouldn't rule out using drones on our side of the border, on humans, or maybe caves. You look at some of these caves and things that are out there, one drone stack, they're gone. And they're easy to find. A reporter put it to Carson. That's uh, kind of an extreme idea. Drone strikes on American soil seems a little over the top, even to entertain that. You can entertain all kinds of things. Here's the take-home point. Take-home point is that we have excellent military leaders, and we need to employ their expertise because this is a war that we are fighting. You can entertain it. You can entertain a lot of things. Got a little oppositional there. And in later interviews, Carson said it's irresponsible of the media to say he advocated drone strikes on the U.S. side of the border. That's right. He didn't advocate them, but he said he'd entertain them. Raises some interesting questions. He's open to it. Of course, there's a big difference between advocating something and entertaining something, right? We all had the friend who entertained the idea of following fish around instead of attending college during his junior year. Now he's advocating, same guy as advocating, that you buy a mutual fund from his company in order to diversify your portfolio. I do have to say, actually, in real life, I find mutual funds more interesting than fish. But I digress. So Ben Carson, he didn't flip-flop, but he wouldn't rule out drones in the U.S. because our military is really, really good. Let me just just read this, this sentence from Stars and Stripes. Military demand for drones in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere has ballooned in recent years, and the Air Force has struggled to fill the needed positions and has struggled to keep pilots from being overworked and make time for needed training. So just entertaining the idea of giving them more work domestically, well, that just is entertaining, isn't it? I guess the point with the Carson idea, the Scott Walker Canada Wall idea, is that there is no 
outer boundary to what America needs to do to define our boundaries. Chris Christie even says, let's track immigrants like FedEx does. Those lagging candidates, they got to step up their game. Senator Cruz, Senator Graham, Governor Jindal. What do you think about foreign students overstaying their visas? I know we fly them back to their home countries, but why not a cannon? Is there anything that says we we can't shoot them out of a cannon to get there? Because that would be entertaining. On the show today, I spiel about my whereabouts of a decade ago, but now pizza by the slice. Pretty nice. When you're running a small business, time is your most valuable asset. Unless your business is, say, diamonds, then it would be the diamonds. Unless those kind of diamonds are in the service of diamond watches, then once more, time is your most valuable asset. Anyway, why take up time, diamond watch time, or any other time by making a trip to the post office when you could bring the post office right to your desk with Stamps.com? Go ahead. You've got to work smart. What with your diamond watch business? Do it with Stamps.com. All you need is a computer and a printer. You buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. It's on demand, ready when you need it, 24-7. No more dropping what you're doing to make it to the post office before they close. Just print the postage, put it on your letter or package, hand it to the mail carrier. Maybe if there are diamonds inside, insure it, and you're done. Use my promo code, the GIST, for this special offer. A four-week trial, $110 bonus offer. It includes a free digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Again the diamond people among the audience. You have a scale. I know that. But this is good. This scale correlates to the letters. Very useful. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com today. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com and enter the gist. All the tea in China. There's no way to quantify that. All the whiskey in Ireland. Eh, it's probably been drunk. All the pizza in New York. Actually, that was one man's ambition. His name is Colin Hagendorf. His middle name is Atrophy. Is that right, Colin? Okay, you know how people get a punk name when yeah. they do stuff? So yeah. I did a fanzine when I was 14 called Atrophyzine. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, in Latin American cultures, you have your mother's name, you have your father's name, a family name. That's cool. Right. You're so inventing have, it yourself. Yeah. So Colin Hagendorf has written a book called Slice Harvester. He had a blog of that name. He's got a Twitter feed of that name. And he had a mission. It started in August 2009. So we're talking about the six-year anniversary. He was going to eat and review a slice of pizza from every place that sold pizza by the slice. That's right. Cheese pizza, which I think was a decision that probably saved your life. You don't. If, where are you from? <laughs> well, if you had gone with... There are well, three, no, where, where are you from? I'm from Long Island. Why did you say cheese pizza? Who says cheese pizza in New York? It's a regular slice. That's yeah, crazy. Slice. You sound like you're from somewhere you else play, when you say It's called a plain pizza. slice. Yeah. Like cheese pizza. Well, the worst is pizza pie. Ugh. Oh, my God. It's horrible. That is the linguistic version of the knife and fork. Yeah who, yeah. who are these people? Okay, so when you start, what's your relationship to pizza? It started because of a slice that I hated. Mm-hmm. I had been in, in the Bay Area. I was on tour with this band, Shotwell, uh, with my friend Scoop that is uh, from there but was living here. We went on tour. I was, like, riding trains and hitchhiking back home doing some, you know, just horrible, childish oogle traveling or whatever. I got home, and I was hanging out with him, and I, he was like, so how was your trip, blah, blah, blah. I'd gone for two months, and I was like, oh, man, I was in Colorado Springs at my dad's cousin's house. And he took me to the worst pizza place I've ever been to in my life. And I start telling him. It's called NYPD, which is just horrible. It's like a thing about New York style slices elsewhere is just a, it's an affront. 
Yeah. You know? And then also NYPD, and it stood for New York Pizza Delicatessen, which uh. my friend Steve was like, there's a word for a pizza delicatessen, Colin. It's called pizzeria. <laughs> you know, and I, I was just, and I was furious, and I, and I glossed over yeah, a bunch of, I almost got arrested a couple times. You know, I, like, a bunch of interesting stuff had happened on this trip, and all I talked about to Scoop was that I hated this pizza. And he was like, wow, you really hate that pizza. What are we going to do about that? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I should get a job where I tell them, I go around the country and I tell people how bad their pizza is and how to make it better. <laughs> or just like, the first part. Your well, pizza yeah, sucks. <laughs> kind of. I, I got mean, nothing. We were just that. joking around. You know what I yeah. mean? It's and, like an actor trying to do the New York accent. There's one non-New Yorker who could do it. That's Anthony LaPaglia. He's from Australia. Does a good New York accent. No one else really does a good New York accent. Somewhere out there, there maybe is a slice of quote-unquote New York pizza that succeeds. Have you ever had a slice of New York style pizza outside New York that succeeded? Serrano's, I think it's called, on 21st and uh, between Valencia and San Carlo in San Francisco is like a fair to middling New York slice. It's okay. not like a great slice, you know what right, I mean? Right, but it's, right, right. It's good. It's good pizza. It's I stand by it. Also, there's this place in Providence. They don't do New York style pizza, but it's yeah. called Tommy's. It's in a basement. I think, and I think there's definitely a correlation between Providence as a city being run by a corrupt mob mayor. They have decent pizza there. Mm-hmm. But my friends took me to this place, and I think I was more willing to give it a chance because it's rectangular pies and they weren't trying to front like it was New York slices and it was delicious and if it had been a triangle I would have loved it so when you talk this over with your friend you know within six sentences of that someone says well how many pizza places do you think they are so how many did you conceive you'd have to hit didn't even consider it really you know like when you got like a big sink full of dishes Mm because you've just been living like a dirtbag and you haven't done the dishes in two weeks or Mm -hmm. whatever and it's like when I mean, I don't know. I don't want to universalize this, but, like, when I conceive of, okay, it's time to do these dishes, if I try to think of, like, how am I going to get through every single one of these dishes, I'm just going to walk away and leave them in the sink. But right. if I'm like, well, I'm going to wash this plate and that plate, and that'll fit in the dish rack, right. and then I'm going to wash this mug because I need that later, it seemed unsustainable to look at it as, like, how am I going to get through this whole thing? It was like, okay, I'm going to go eat every slice of pizza above Dykeman. Right. And then it was like, okay, I'm going to go eat every slice of pizza above 180th Street. Right. Okay, I'm going to go eat every slice of pizza, et cetera, et cetera, and just like breaking Manhattan down into quadrants and eating it a little bit at a time. And that was really manageable. It's like they say, the longest journey begins with a single slice. Yeah, So what was the first slice? The first slice was Grandpa's Pizza, which I think is on, I forget the address. I think it's on like 207th Street. Yeah, so that's um, really the geographic, n- most northerly geographic part of the city. Well, technically, I actually missed a slice. Uh-huh. And in the actual Marble Hill, which is, it looks like it's in the Bronx, yeah. is zoned as Manhattan. But it's across the river, it's isn't across it? Across the Spite river, but it's, it's zoned oh, as part that, of Manhattan, uh, like a city planner friend yeah. of mine told me. So, And there's one pizzeria there. Okay. That would have been the northernmost. Let's fast forward a couple yeah, yeah. years into this project. Let's say you've eaten 200 slices of pizza already. Okay. Would you ever do two slices in a place? No. Yeah. There was a place in Inwood on my second trip out eating pizza called Five O Pizza, mm-hmm. I want to say. Which is a little like NYPD. But it's all one word. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, there's no hyphen there. Right. It was called Five O Pizza, and I was with my friend Eric, and it was like our sixth slice that day, <laughs> and it was good. It was yeah. really good, and we were like, should we get a second one? And then we were like, nah, you know what? Nah, it's close, but nah, we don't, we're full. When I got down to Supremo, which ended up being my favorite at 31st Street, or it's on 8th Avenue between 30th and 31st, right by the post office behind Madison Square Garden, 
was with my friends Eliza and BBC, and that was the first ever place where I actually got a second slice. Oh, really? Because it was so good. It was so good. That was the first slice of the day, and the decision to get a second slice was really because it was gonna that was gonna interfere with all the rest of the pizza eating. Mm -hmm. We were like, are we sure we want to do this? There was like a ten minute consensus process. Yeah. Do you fold it? Oh yeah, always. Do you let it drip or blot the uh, the grease? Yeah. Do you blot the grease? I never blot. Sometimes yeah. if it's a really greasy slice, I'll put the red pepper and the salt and a little bit of black pepper on. And then I'll drip it down yeah. onto the plate yeah. and make a puddle. And then I'll eat the slice. And then when I get to the crust, I tear the crust open and I dip it in the grease. That's very satisfying. It's so it's good. Really the extra satisfying. grease is pretty good. I like it. Yeah. I'm disgusting, though. What would you think of Patsy's? I love Patsy's. Really? Yeah. See, I order in from Patsy's and the center, just like that... Uh, what is it? The falcon cannot hear the falconer, and the center, <laughs> and the center does not hold, and the center does not hold. Yeah. Oh my God, that's wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, Yates. Yeah, that is Yates. Yeah, that's Yates. Uh, so it's like it doesn't. It doesn't pass. last. Yeah, it doesn't pass the Yates test. Uh, it does not pass. <laughs> but yeah, but you know what? Pizza like that does not need but to pass the Yates test. But when you have it by test, the right? slice, it doesn't have to. But I order the pie, and the you don't center want it gets by the slice. Mush. No, you, I, yeah. I, I went and sat in Patsy's and ate a pie from there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> with my friend Cinque and Megan, who had just uh -huh. got back from working beet harvest or something. Uh huh. Did the Ukrainian wait staff enjoy that? They're all they, they're all Ukrainian. They the loved us. There was no one in there. <laughs> we smelled like shit. Uh, that was when I was still drinking, and I was like a total, total dirtbag. I know that uh, there's a lot of references to your sobriety. Did the pizza journey aid in that? Yeah, absolutely. Tell me how. I think it was important to give me something to do, mm -hmm. frankly, and I think... Structure. You know, I'm like a pretty inherently social person, right? And I like to hang out. I like to be around my friends. I always was kind of jealous that, like, in punk culture, you can't really do, like, a posse cut. Right? What's I don't know what that means. A posse, posse cut, cut is, like, when you get all your friends that are rappers to rap on your song. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, it's not, it doesn't make any sense to have, like, the guitar player from the other, you know what I yeah, mean? It's six just, different guitar parts. You can't do that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always wanted to do just, like, the posse cut where I get all my friends that I think are so cool to come do the thing with me. Yeah. And so Slice Harvester was, like, this two-year posse cut, right, where I just, That's like, cool. I got to invite all my friends. And it wasn't just we were eating pizza. It was, like, I'm eating pizza. And also my friend Caroline Paquita does this printmaking thing called Pegacorn Press where she prints these these wild uh, zines and she makes art in her own right and like da 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 and it was like I get to bring in all my friends and uh, when I started quitting drinking for real for the first time uh, it was like a, I, I couldn't go to shows anymore like mm -hmm. I used to because that was all about just getting blotto I had a kind of a way to socialize and a way to interact with the people that I cared about what finds, what places that don't get any of the press for best slices really deserve some great press? I mean, besides Supremo, which I feel like was super slept on and was really good. Where um, is it? That's on, on 8th Avenue between 30th and 31st. There's this place, Gino's, on uh, 83rd and 1st, mm -hmm. which was, I think it's like the third chapter of the book. It was when I was eating pizza with Phoebe Cates and uh, her daughter, uh, Frankie Cosmos. And that was the first 
like transcendent slice that I had. Genos. Genos. They're not nice to my kids. Oh, they're terrible. They're really mean. They were, it is a good slice, though. It's a great slice of pizza. <laughs> yeah. They were they were so nice when I came in there with Phoebe yeah. Cates. Yeah. Every oh, time okay. I've that's, been that's the trick. Go with Phoebe. Yeah, go with Phoebe Cates. Yeah. Every time I've been well, back any, since any other cast members of Fast Times work, or you think just Phoebe? I think just Phoebe. Okay. Anytime I've been back since, like with just me and some friend, yeah, they've been so strange to me. Uh, but the pizza's good, and honestly, like I gotta be honest, my kids aren't always well behaved. But we're well, yeah, I bet your I kids are piece in, of yeah. shit. Who cares? <laughs> it's, we'll get a slice of pizza. Um, but the, I mean, sorry if I said that about your kids. No, it's okay. Okay, I was just, you know, just I'm trying to do a thing. Um, but then I backtracked. Yeah, uh, I should have just stuck he's, with it. He's punk, but he's polite. Yeah, what you can know. you do? Oh no, he's inherently um, polite. But. Uh, and then there's a place. Oh, I was just I was just looking at it. It's like not too far from here, and I just forgot the name on Sixth Avenue Canal. Rossetti's Pizza. Rossetti's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rossetti's Pizza. Rossetti's is the that bomb. Is Rossetti's good. is so good. And it's yeah, and it's one of those awnings where you wouldn't think it would be. You can't yeah. go by awning. No, no, you no. You can't go by voted best slice either. Absolutely not. There's no correlation. I no. Think. Yeah. One of the worst places. They had all these plaques. Yeah. Like these engraved plaques from Pizza Today magazine that were like, oh, we won this fucking thing. And it was garbage. That slice was garbage. And Pizza Today is a garbage publication, so oh, I yeah. guess it makes sense that they would reward garbage pizza. They're in the pocket of big tomato sauce, I yeah. think. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, honestly, it's a trade magazine. The first, you could, Anyone can get a, a subscription to Pizza Today for free if they say that they're a pizzeria. Oh, okay. And so... I had a made-up pizzeria called Colin Atrophy's Precious Kingdom that I, I said that was the name of my business. I was getting pizza today mailed to my P.O. box to Colin Atrophy's Precious Kingdom for yeah. a long time. And uh, the first issue I got was there was an article about, like, uh, like whether you should let a guy with an eyebrow ring work behind the counter and, like, the pros and cons of having alternative wait staff. What's the con? I don't know. There is none. Like, yeah. uptight Midwestern people won't want to go there or whatever. Right. But even... Those people in 2015 all have a nephew that has an eyebrow ring. So like, yeah, no or one... a de- you know, if you stand by your pizza, if it's good enough, that becomes charming. Pizza Today, the magazine is about turning everything into a Starbucks. It's about like, yeah. there's a reason there's no good pizza chains. It's because you have to have the same oven. You have right. to have one weirdo that's a like in charge of everything, yelling at everybody. Yeah. Or DeFaro's Pizza, which is in Brooklyn, but I don't know if you have you ever. Yeah, of course I've been there. Okay, so the guy's hands are so calloused, he just puts them right in the ovens. This leads to numerous health code violations that close down half the time. But it's the best pizza. One of my favorite pizzas. It's just like a good pizza. Let me just say this: a a good pizza, I think, is like a good radio show. I've noticed this: that any time a committee tries to start a radio program, eh, it never works. But when there's one guy, one like Ira Glass, one Howard Stern, one person saying, "This is my vision." That's a good. It doesn't. Always, sometimes it's a it's a huge train wreck, but that's the only way to get a transcendent slice of pizza or a good radio show. Yeah, I, I think, think I think that makes sense. I was at a pizzeria one time, and this total wolf of Wall Street dickhead was in there, and he was like, "Oh, I'm good. Oh, this and this and this." And the pizzeria guy, like the pizzaiolo or whatever you call him, right? He picks up a slice, the first slice, and throws it in the oven. Yeah. And the guy was like, uh, "You know, you touched that slice with your hands, and that's uh." You know, I don't know what kind of germs. You don't even have gloves on. You should put gloves on. And the pizzeria guy was like, listen, buddy, that oven is 500 fucking degrees, all right? If you don't think whatever's on my hands is getting cooked off in it, you know what? You know what? Get out. Get out. Get out right now. I don't want, you can't have this slice. That's right. Hey, buddy, and he turns to me, you want a slice? And I was like, yeah, hell yeah, I want a slice. Yeah, get out. Yeah, that's right, get out. As you go on, 
how does your relationship with pizza change? I mean, I know that it would be like good for some kind of narrative if my relationship with pizza changed, but like I really just like pizza. But do you think the bar raised? Do you think like do you think in two thousand eight you would have an okay slice of pizza and say that was an okay slice of pizza? Hey, it was pizza. But by two thousand eleven, you were like, okay is not okay. No, I was a dick about it the whole time. That's why I did this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like no, yeah. nothing is. There's no difference. I feel the same way about pizza as I felt in the first place. I like a good slice. I'll settle for a medium slice and a shitty slice is a shitty. Slice. You know what I mean? Like yeah. um. But I like my standards haven't changed and I'm just as happy when I'm happy and just as bummed when I'm bummed. Slice Harvester, a memoir in pizza, Colin Hagendorf. Thanks, Colin. You're welcome. So there are only a few more preseason games to go before the regular season kicks off. I, of course, speak of the Democratic and Republican primaries. No, something that's important in the NFL. Here's what's really important. You could win $2 million in week one at DraftKings.com, America's favorite one-week fantasy football site. So, you know, you might know this about me. I play fantasy football. But what happens, as sometimes happens, when your, when your league is over, when it turns out your team stinks? You turn to DraftKings.com. You just play fantasy football every week. It's the biggest fantasy football contest ever. $10 million in prizes. $2 million for first place. And listen to this. $1 million for second place. I just try to get into second place twice. That's as good as one million, and I think the tax consequences are even better. One-week fantasy means no season-long commitments. You don't have to deal with those other idiots in your league, all their jokes, all their talking about the stuff that happened in college just because you happen to snag Eddie Lacy with a good pick over Jamal Charles. It's fantasy football on demand, where you want, when you want, with the players you want. Every game feels like the playoffs, even week one, and every broken tackle or spectacular catch could take you closer to a $2 million prize, or even the $1 million second place prize. I think this is a really good selling point that they should hit even bigger. It's not fantasy as usual. It's DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. Hurry to DraftKings.com now and use promo code GIST to play free for the shot at $2 million in the week one millionaire maker. Enter just for free now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. And now the spiel, the eye of the storm. I was in Louisiana, not the day Katrina made landfall, but the next day, the day the levees were breached. I wasn't in New Orleans then. That would have been impossible unless you were already in place beforehand. But when it became clear that most of the city was underwater, I got on a flight for NPR, and I flew down to Lafayette, Louisiana. I was lucky to get a hotel room. In the parking lot of my hotel, there was a police car, a New Orleans police car. Now, Lafayette is about 130 miles to the west of New Orleans, and I was pretty sure the NOPD was out of its jurisdiction. They, in fact, were. I found out that the police car belonged to, well, it belonged to New Orleans, but it was driven out of New Orleans by an officer who fled town, she said, to help a disabled relative, this being her only route out. Within a few months, the city would begin disciplinary procedures against officers like the one I met. They fired hundreds of officers. This was a big story, or it would have been, were it not for just everything else that was going on. 
The next day, I drove to New Orleans, and I expected to be turned away by cops at roadblocks, but there were none. When one road was impassable, I improvised another way, and I came across only one policeman on my way, so I gathered up my press credentials, which, by the way, that wouldn't have done the trick in New York. Keeping the press out seemed to be the primary mission of the police after 9-11. But here, let's just say the police seem to have other matters on their mind. One way to look at this is to note that the upside of lawlessness is a little bit of press freedom. Another way to look at this is to say when things are in such an active state of disarray, a reporter or two is the least of anyone's concerns. So almost immediately, I encounter a giant field of people. Hundreds, I, I, I do think it was th- at least a thousand, probably thousands of people standing there under a highway being fed a few hot dogs. This was not the Superdome. This was not the convention center. There was hardly any other media there. But all these people were telling similarly desperate stories. Everything's been destroyed. You're wearing everything you own. I'm wearing everything I own. A t-shirt, underwear, jeans, and sandals. That's it. Have you had anything to eat or drink? Uh, not for a while. You know, it's just so stressful. You can't get hungry. I talked to so many stranded, desperate people, and I saw them being whisked away on buses to cities hundreds of miles away. Here's some of what I reported at the time. Even the strongest were humbled by the hurricane. Eric Kroll was flooded out of his New Orleans home. I mean, it was like toilet water, pretty much. And, it, it, you know, I'm nauseated now trying to get my system back drinking water, but I, I just can't get it back to normal, I guess. It's just the whole big scenario, you know, it's stress. And I've been in the Marines and I've had stress, but nothing come close. Kroll, like everyone else, was getting on the buses that ever so periodically showed up. They were going to, well, no one knew. The bus driver might say Dallas, he might say Houston. It didn't matter. People just wanted to get out and to get messages out. I've since wondered how many people just wound up settling in the city where the bus took them. If it was a bus from Memphis, say... Instead of Dallas, how different would their lives be? So I rode along with all sorts of rescuers. I rode with volunteers on boats. I rode with an EMS crew who was headed for the Superdome. I rode with members of the 1087th Division of the Army National Guard. They had these giant trucks with five-foot-tall tires. They called five tons. They went to help stranded residents. Katrina was simultaneously the best and the worst story I ever covered. There were so many stories of survival, of near death, of death, of witnessing horror, that they actually became rote. I don't mean I became numb to them, but by day two or three, my editor, Martha, back in L.A., and I agreed, you know, we've just heard all these stories so often. They're similar. Even if they're dramatic, how many times can someone be plucked from the roof of a house or get on a boat and taken to one place, get on another boat and find a bus? What in other circumstances would be riveting, unignorable, just the most important piece you filed all year here in New Orleans. It was just another drip, drip, drip in the torrent. So the cynical saying goes that one story is a tragedy, a thousand stories is a statistic. So it's really important you don't let that happen. So we found wrinkles and we took a step back to help listeners realize how bad it was for days and days after the storm hit. I remember my NPR colleague John Burnett and his producer Ann Hawk doing heroic work. I remember NPR's Robert Siegel getting the director of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff, on the line and informing Chertoff of facts he did not know. We're contending with the force of Mother Nature. 
But and and what is your sense? I'm trying to. I mean, by the weekend, do you expect that everybody in New Orleans will have some kind of food and water delivered I, I, by this I, operation? I, I would expect that uh, that unless people are trapped in isolated places that we can't get to, I would expect that everybody's going to have access to food and water and and medical care. The key is to get people to staging areas. There are some people who are stranded but who are not in, in imminent danger. They are not people that we're going to necessarily rescue immediately. We're going to try to get them their food and water so they can sustain themselves until we can pick them up. We're here, we are hearing from, from our reporter, and he's on another line right now, thousands of people at the convention center in New Orleans with no food. Well, Zero. You know, as I say, I'm telling you that we are getting food and water to areas where people are staging. And, um, you know, it's, the one thing about an episode like this is if you, if you talk to someone and you get a rumor or you get someone's anecdotal version of something, I think it's dangerous to extrapolate it all over the place. Um, the, the limitation here on getting food and water to people is the condition on the ground. And as, as soon as we can physically move through the ground um, with these assets, we're going to do that. So, but but yeah. second, Mr. Secretary, when you say that there, we, don't, we shouldn't listen to rumors, these are things coming from reporters who have not only covered many, many other hurricanes, They've covered wars and refugee camps. Well, I mean, I, these aren't rumors. I, I, They're seeing thousands of people but, but, there. But, well, I, I, I would be I – say, I, I have not heard a report of thousands of people in the convention center who don't have food and water. After that interview, I remember the column written by the late David Carr, media reporter for The New York Times, quote, In particular, CNN, the much maligned, overrun cable news operation – and National Public Radio, the prissy, embattled bastion of the quiet left, both found their voices amidst the chaos. Now I know that Carr, who died earlier this year, is sainted, but then I wanted to punch him in the nose. I was wearing thigh-high waders sloshing through muck, actually doing the reporting. He was, at a remove in New York City, pronouncing my news organization prissy. I stayed in New Orleans and the area for about three weeks. I bounced to Houston for a while. I came back to New York to cover a Monday night football game between the Giants and Saints. It was in New Jersey, but it counted as a Saints home game. Then it was back to Houston for Hurricane Rita, the government mistakes of which are worth a spiel or two of their own sometime. But I do not want this to be a recounting of my war stories or a kind of elegy 10 years removed. I want to tell you the three big things I learned from Katrina. One, rumors kill. Remember that EMS team I talked about? They were headed to the Superdome. They never got there. They decided it was too risky because they heard reports of snipers taking shots at ambulances. One of the staff said he'd heard that an entire Coast Guard crew had been kidnapped. The five-ton army truck I rode in, they gave me a helmet because they too had heard of snipers shooting at army trucks. Shots heard, snipers out. The rumors were everywhere, but follow-up stories and studies found that none of it could be verified. The president of Jefferson Parish couldn't get a message to the governor because he was told there was a riot going on, but there was no riot. But the effect of the rumors was that they dissuaded help from getting to where it was needed, just as surely as actual rioters or actual snipers would have kept the cavalry at bay. Except they are the army. It is the cavalry. I never understood that part of it. The second thing I learned was I gained an insight into a slice of gun culture. So many people were so certain 
that they were going to be victimized by crime, that it wound up causing more victimization. All these stories abounded. Some of them were real. There was looting going on. I talked to people who told me they did loot, but it was to get food or medical supplies or toiletries for their family. I definitely remember the clips of people clearing out Walmarts and heading off with large screen TV. I'm not naive. But I sensed that there was a sentiment of, yup, is what we've always feared. This is why we're prepared. This is why we're armed. The radio burned up with calls like this. You have sheriff uh, stuff. Are you seeing this? The, you say things are starting to get out of hand. As a resident who owns a house in Jefferson Parish, does that mean to me that I should be worried now that my home has been or may be looted? It's possible. Or as a business owner, should I be concerned my home has, my business has been or, or maybe have been looted? Absolutely. Did gun ownership, did the ubiquitous sign saying looters will be shot on sight, did all that protect much property? If it did, it was only a tiny fraction of what a decently conceived levy system would have saved. But hundreds of people weren't allowed to cross the Gretna Bridge to safety because of fear of looters. And then there was the incident on the Danziger Bridge, where New Orleans police killed two innocent civilians. Five officers were found guilty at trial. Those convictions were overturned. New trials are coming. But I remember talking to officers candidly right in their staging area. It was the parking lot of a Harris casino. They were bone-weary. They were overworked. And remember, these were the ones who stayed behind to do their jobs. They didn't flee. But they told me they were being overwhelmed by crime. And a few talked of having just returned from that bridge and what they saw there. Rumors added to the confusion, but you know what? So did a belief that there was something going on a little like the battle between the forces of civilization and the forces of chaos. So the last thing I learned was a hopeful thing. It's that if people trust their leaders, then people will be reasonable. You wouldn't find much trust in New Orleans, which might be for good reason. You will notice that during these 10-year anniversary stories, they'll say Mayor Ray Nagan is unavailable for comment. Yeah, he's serving a 10-year prison sentence on bribery charges. But I went to St. Gabriel, Louisiana, which is closer to Baton Rouge than New Orleans, about an hour outside of New Orleans. This is where the morgue was set up and where the poor, frightened residents were told the bodies would be stored. So at a town hall meeting, the representatives of the government were peppered with hard-to-answer questions. They were scolded for allowing refrigerated semi-trucks containing the dead to roll through the town's dirt roads. But then one resident stood up. His name was Emmanuel Anderson, and he said this. All I'm, all I'm trying to say is, let's try to do our part to help the country. Let's try to help New Orleans. We're all alive and healthy. The Lord has blessed us. We still have our homes. We can still eat. And there are people that are still in New Orleans that are still alive and they haven't been rescued yet. So let's take that into consideration also. It's not as if the answers offered by the mayor or the morticians got any better after Mr. Anderson's speech, but the townspeople grew more understanding. Katrina was a time of chaos. And really, I'm not sure how much we all ultimately learned But I'll quote for you the Bible verse that the St. Gabriel chief of police quoted to me. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. I think that's the lesson of Katrina. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produces the gist. Joel Meyer, for one more day after this, Andy Bowers is the executive producer. They Might Be Giants does a song for us every Monday. They do it for you, too. Their number for Dial a Song is 844-387-6962. But a world debut happens here every Monday. 
So right now I give you They Might Be Giants with What Did I Do To You? Whatever happens to chopped off, unloved, resentful appendages, will they be phoning us at 3 a.m.? Whatever happens to them? What is that distant scampering? Have you secured the gates and put out the lights? Though my pounding heart nearly drowns it out. What is that scampering sound? Someone's tampered with the storage unit. Lock! Someone's dragging something heavy down the